a religion is a completely different thing from being religious. So you could be religious and not join a religion. Most religions have an evangelical control of trying to have that religion be adopted. We're getting almost into capitalism here, right? I mean, we're getting something that you're selling means that you have people following your religion and following you and giving you power. There are anthropologists who have referred to humans as homo religiosus, as being naturally needing large stories that orient them, that they can interpret, that they can respond to spiritually through ritual, through mm. practice, through imaginative art, and being religious. The religious way has to do with treating others fairly and with passion. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Ursula Goodenough. Ursula is a professor of biology emerita at Washington University in St. Louis. She's also the author of The Sacred Depths of Nature, How Life Has Emerged and Evolved. This is a book that calls for religious naturalism, and Ursula herself is a religious naturalist, serving as the president of the Religious Naturalist Association. She joins me to discuss the book and religious naturalism, calling for a grand story that can unite humankind, appreciate our role as stewards on the planet, and celebrate the diversity both of culture and life on this planet. We discuss humankind as a symbolic species and discuss how story can be used to anchor our existence. We talk about the relationship between language and symbolism and mindedness, consciousness and the brain, the position of individuals and community, the relationship between mystery and knowledge, and the key difference, Ursula explains, between being religious and being spiritual. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Ursula, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. So my first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Well, uh, I would say the world is ultimately in crisis because we don't have a large central story that we are all anchored in in terms of understanding how the planet and life and everything fits together. And we have instead a number of stories, including some very toxic ones like 
capital, capitalistic overreach <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that um, dominate what people think and how they orient their lives. And so, as you know, having read my book, um, it's my sense that uh, we would do well to adopt a large story that anchors our existence and work from there. And that story includes humans, human cultures, all of which are part of nature, and the wisdom traditions that come to us from the past, which have a great deal that can, we can learn from. That's a, I mean, obviously, yes, I completely agree. <laughs> to <Okay>. begin, <laughs> totally agree. But um, one thing that you say in your book towards the end is that um, the strategy that you've chosen for yourself is to not have any beliefs and to dwell in the mystery. So how do we write a story that allows for us to not have any beliefs and dwell in the mystery? Well, the mystery part for me comes with the ultimate questions. Why is there anything at all rather than nothing? Uh, why is uh, Why did all of this happen? Um, I don't have any answers to those questions and I feel comfortable living in a state of not knowing the answers to those questions so just having them out there. But I think we have lots of answers and not at all mystery as to how the planet works and how life works. So uh, those can those we can anchor in even if we don't have answers to the ultimate questions. So what kind of story should we be weaving that can celebrate the plurality of our own cultures and the diversity of this wonderful planet? that we share with everything else. Well, I try to write a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) So the book tells the story and offers reflections on um, why it is religiously meaningful to me and to many others. And uh, that's my answer. (laughs) Can you extrapolate a little bit more for me? Like um, religiously, please go ahead. Oh, okay. So the story starts with the Big Bang and goes through the uh, evolution of the universe and the formation of our star and its planets uh, for four and a half billion years ago and their evolution and then the origin of life on our planet, at least. Maybe the, maybe there's life on others elsewhere, but we probably never know. And um, what these... Um, then the evolution of life on the planet up to the present day and the humans showing up very, very recently and having a particular trait that I think is important, um, which is our ability to have language and um, to uh, symbolize our language as opposed to other creatures that communicate but not in the same way. And this has allowed us to write histories and narratives and to pass these stories on to each other and that whole bolus I call culture. Um everybody calls that. And um so human cultures are therefore very involved in um the natural worlds. So writing a story that perhaps our our story or our myth, our grand narrative is the recognition of ourselves as a symbolic species then that's certainly a you know a big part of it i mean once we understand that that's what we're doing that's i would say unique then we can 
look at it to say, okay, what kinds of stories are we telling ourselves now and how do they fit in with what we now understand in terms of the universe and life and so on as the science has led us to uh, understand these things. Now, as you just explained, you know, in the beginning of your book, you really sort of go back to to the beginning, really, and sort of scientifically yeah. unravel, you know, this is this was the formation of the universe, this is the formation of the planet, this is the formation of, you know, the first cellular organism and evolution and all of this kind of stuff. So where would you say is the divergence scientifically between the stories that, you know, mechanistic atomized science currently tells humankind versus um, where you diverge and discuss, you know, the sort of symbolic creativity, that capacity as being um, inherently human? Well, I would say that our language, which comes from our minds and our minds come from our brains and we could take brains and atomize them as well. So there's no real um, gap. There's no real um, inconsistency between thinking of um, things based on our scientific understandings and um, how we view our present moment. Um, but there is a lot in between there that um, I find intriguing and really helpful and it just grounds what we then come up with. What are some of those things in between? Well, I do a lot about with the concept of emergence. So people are, lots of people are very uh, disgruntled about science because they say it, it does what you just said, atomizes and makes everything reduced. Um, but in fact, what happens uh, certainly in life and on occasion, there are occasions in the non-living world as well, where relationships form between the atomic uh, materials such that they generate shapes and these shapes then interact with one another. And what happens is what I call something else from nothing but. So something else emerges, um, which is different from the uh, nothing buts. The nothing buts have to be there in order for anything to emerge. But what emerges are the properties that we generally associate with life, like the ability of enzymes to catalyze reactions, the ability of a fertilized egg to undergo development into an embryo that is dull. So all of those are, you can go down, as scientists do, because they're interested in how this all happens, um, and figure out that it's this protein and that sugar and so on that, that allow these things to happen. But the emergent things that happen are also science-based. It's just uh, a different way of looking at it. It's what results from these relationships. And one of those results is our human mind. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's, let's stick on the, the brain and the mind because... Look at... Um, now, I am not a neuroscientist, far from it. <laughs> well, neither am I, but I, I read it. <laughs> from what I understand, we don't know very much, or, or in comparison to the things that we know about very, very, very many things in the, in the knowable universe, our brain is still a little bit of a mystery to us in many ways, certainly where consciousness emerges oh, from. Okay, so there's lots that's understood about 
the brain, including the human brain. But uh, in except for some of our mindedness, um, lots of what our brains do does, does is exactly what a monkey's brain does, and what a rat's brain does, what a fish brain does. So there's been uh, a building of once animals came up with the idea of brains, there has been incredible evolution and going in all sorts of different directions. So the brain of a bird uh, is a wonderful thing and they can learn and they have all sorts of ideas of how to migrate and how to find worms and all the other things they do. Um, our brain thing uh, isn't so great at migrating and finding worms, but we have this uh, capacity to, as very young children, we are language ready and we learn these languages from our culture and the there are thousands of labs trying to figure out how this works so it's not like nobody cares or nobody is trying uh it's just that there is still not a clear story uh yet of all the moving parts that generate this we know from diseases and malformations of the brain in some uh, human children, what parts are involved because if they are defective, then the language part doesn't work. So we, we can map where all of this comes from, but exactly how it works is still not known. But I mean, I would say that if you woke up tomorrow morning and read at the newspaper that scientists have figured this out and it's the hippocampus interacting with the lateral sulculeal. He knew all of this stuff. It would be fascinating, uh, but you already know what it is. You already have the experience of being a minded human. And so it, it would be hard to translate it. You just say, hey, that's cool. Um, and continue being <laughs> a human. <laughs> I'm really interested in this idea that there is, you know, the, the world and then there is our perception of the world and within that perception are the symbols and within those sort of symbols are also all of these interrelationships um, and that language is kind of how we make sense of it. So, I mean, what, what do you think is the relationship between language as an emergent property of consciousness? which gives rise then to symbolism, which is then not just another way of experiencing the world, but perhaps the creation of another world on top of the biophysical reality that we as embodied flesh <laughs> species move through. Well, uh, of course, we <clears throat> take off from the world all the time. It's called poetry, art, uh, <laughs> um, imagination. Okay, so we don't have to stick to the nuts and bolts of the material world in our minds. We can take our minds anywhere. Uh, and we do. And we enjoy that and communicate with one another via those strata uh, in many ways that are not available to other beings on the planet. Um, so our dog can pick up on our emotions and uh, pick up on our activities and pick up on the smells of other dogs. But the dog isn't going to stand in front of a Picasso and hmm. uh, try to figure out what P Picasso was doing when he made that drawing. So we just do something. We're just different. Um, and that isn't in any way to 
uh, say that we're not totally connected with and interdependent on and interrelated with the rest of the planet. So it's it's hmm. an interesting. Um, it's not a dichotomy. It's mm-hmm. it's a blending between the human things that we do in our cultural uh, world and what we do when we're out in nature and realize that we're totally a part of it and arose from. I, I suppose I'm wondering if there's another emergent property of the universe that is constantly being uh, born or developed through humankind's relationship with language and through the development well, of symbols. The universe is pretty big. We're a tiny, mm-hmm. <laughs> a mm-hmm. tiny little dot in it. So the idea that we might be influencing the universe is a little bit uh, uh, gutsy. But, hmm. um, but, and if we were able to space travel and find another planet where there were beings that were also doing language, that would be really cool. But, uh, you know, until we know that's the case, we can certainly say that the way we do it is unique. But all organisms have unique traits. We just happen to be very interested in the ones that we have. But that doesn't um, put them on a pedestal. It just means that they're the ones that we work with and deal with and enjoy. Oh, I don't mean and, to be granting sort of any special uh, oh, okay. order I mean, to maybe humankind. I no, no, oh, no, no. Okay. I what I, what I'm interested in is like the the emergence, perhaps, of symbolism as another like being, capital B, in and of itself. Oh. Um, which is the perhaps the product of humankind's relationship to language, but doesn't elevate humankind then above the natural world. Okay. Well, we we came up with it. I mean, our brains are three times bigger than. Uh, you know, our closest relatives. So it all evolved so that we could do it. There must have been some advantage to being able to do it that allowed for selection to have us show up 300,000 years ago or whatever it was. Um, but I don't see it as anything different in kind. I, I, it's just, a, we think of it as different in kind because it's so important to us and it's, it's, what we do, but we don't have it when we're little babies, right? We don't, we're uh, enjoying life before we start making, using symbols to communicate what we're feeling. And uh, we define that way. And there are some humans who are incapable of learning languages and they have other kinds of lives. Sure, I just you know we were talking about. Quote- I'm, I, I'm I'm I feel like I'm still missing where, where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me try and, and rephrase and communicate a bit better. Um, this is also because I was I was having a conversation uh, this morning about the the web of words in the world okay. that um. So if we talk about the web of life and this, you know, the fact that everything is interrelated and that you know we all come way 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 back when from the same you know dust from the same cells. Um, and, you know, we can share stories as well of, you know, quite religious experiences um, of feeling uh, oneness or feeling sort of that shared consciousness with everything. Um, and I interviewed Jude Curran about this uh, a couple of months ago, and she spoke about, you know, not the Big Bang, but the Big Breath and that the universe is this sort of emergent, uh, evolving consciousness and we're all expressions of it. And I suppose I'm a writer, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with words. And I'm obsessed with how they impact our perception of the world. 
And so, mm-hmm. you know, we see that like in cultures where they have more words for different colors, they actually see different colors, you know, and um, it really does affect our sort of sensorial being in the world as well. And I suppose I'm curious about whether or not this um, capacity for a symbolic relationship actually brings something else into being too alongside us. And there's a history of, you know, undercurrents of this thought in Western philosophy as, as well. Uh, well, all sorts of philosophies, but that's the one I've sort of read most in. Heidegger, he spoke about, you know, on the origin of the work of art, he spoke about art as capital A, <laughs> that spirit that lives alongside us and that we uh, work with in order to express something else, something bigger than ourselves. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, all I, I agree that the fact that we can do this is terrific. I, I don't feel in my own mind, it doesn't help me to celebrate it anymore, to think of it as something else. Oh, uh, I mean, in, you know, parallel or above or above, I, I see it as a something else that emerges from within the cells that are in our minds um, and that we have this wonderful ability then to write it down or paint it or tell it um, so that we can build on it. It's all terrific. And I'm, I'm, if, if we didn't have it, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, th- there are, there are articulations of the appreciation of this ability that we have that go farther than I need to go. I'm not saying they're wrong. They just don't help me in any way that, that say that this is, you know, something, uh, in addition to nature or, you know, something that somehow puts us outside of the natural world, um, and a different kind of consciousness or something like that. Oh, uh, that, that doesn't, that doesn't help me out, but certainly sure. there are people who, who feel that way. Um, that's an interpretation. Sure. I mean, I don't think any sort of interpretation that human beings are somehow not natural. It's helpful. <laughs> well, it's just, there, there are plenty of them out there. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, I know. You know, I was having a, a very funny conversation with a friend recently um, and we were talking about, uh, we were walking through a forest and we were talking about heaven and how hilarious sort of like the limited capacity of mankind's creativity is when you compare it with, you know, the Eden that we have on this planet. You know, when you think of heaven and of the the, sto- the way that heaven is spoken about, you know, it's white, it's flat, there's some clouds, everybody, everybody's wearing, it's all very sterile, you know. And paved with gold. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry, paved with gold. Sorry, yeah, second color in there. Yeah, paved. And, it, and you compare that to the majesty and richness of an orchard, say. Mm-hmm. And it's like, God, you know, very silly. No. I mean, the, the big deal about heaven, uh, in addition to the, as I agree, the sterile uh, versions of it, uh, you know, angels sort of flapping around or something, <laughs> is, uh, is that you're not dead. I mm. mean, I think that the reason people are interested in heaven is really that it's a place where you're immortal, is the way the stories go. And so if that weren't the case, then uh, there'd be no need to need to posit a head, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you wouldn't 
wouldn't go there. You'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do we do need to learn how to die, I think. <laughs> so death death is a big deal for uh it has been a big inspiration for uh positing other worlds. And it's not mm. just the the, you know, apocalyptic traditions that have these heavens. There there are even in the indigenous and in pagan worlds, there are other worlds where ancestors live where um uh, Things are different than they are here. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's like um, positing another world for just actually, it's just story that exists, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and where there's no death. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, oh, sorry, where was I going to go with that? You just said something that I wanted to. So, our, you know, I think our relationship to, to mortality and, you know, perhaps it's like discomfort with it in some traditions is certainly a story that we I think you know sort of seems to drive a lot of the kind of maladaptive behaviors that we're seeing putting our you know planet and ourselves in danger what are some of these other stories you would identify um that we perhaps need to to rewrite or edit or discard (laughs) our toxic stories (laughs) well I'm not I mean there are people like Dawkins said all Hessians who think that all of these stories are nonsense and that we should, you know, throw them out. And um, my sense is that we certainly need a new story, but that we can bring in, we can cherry pick, uh, we can find good, good stuff in all of the existing stories and come up with something that uh, not only tells us the best way, ways to uh, move forward, but also brings our legacies and histories and ancestors with us. So I liked the idea of a, a woven story, but mm. the story of nature is sort of this a weaving metaphor in, in my book about a warp, which is, you know, what our science-based understandings are uh, of our history, and then a weft that we weave into that to make something that works for us. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, there are these things just, I mean, can't leave out the fact that all humans have a selfish base because that's all, all creatures ourselves. We all have to find food and uh, uh, <clears throat> maintain ourselves, uh, protect ourselves from toxins. So it's, there's never going to be uh never is, I shouldn't use the word, Mm -hmm. there isn't likely to be a future where all critters have no interest in themselves and are only interested in the collective. That's not going to work. But to temper those two uh, uh, directions so that there is self-maintenance, but also a self that joins a community um, is, I would say, the goal. And it's always the in all social lineages, uh, the primates, uh, the wolves, and so on. The same dynamic holds. Each wolf is taking care of his or her wolfness, but is also uh, using the rules, the inherited rules they have to have their pack function from. And we can do that too. Yeah, it seems to be on a bit of like a binary in, you know, our understanding of the world today, this selflessness versus selfishness. 
Whereas, you know, encapsulating the truth, which is no self survives individually. Yeah. A self can only exist as part of a of a many selved I was gonna say organism, a community. <laughs> <laughs> many selved Maybe well, I will say that I many mean, selved can, organism. If, I mean, if it, you may remember from chapter two, I have the origin of life in the first cell or the first critter, which I called autogen. And that critter by definition was by itself. And so the only interaction it had was with its environment, uh, trying to find a sugar or something to keep itself going. And so the interaction with other beings happened later in evolution when lots of different beings came together in one location. So that's the only way, that's the only asterisk that would put upon your, um, <laughs> on your story. But the first life was by definition in a, on a sterile planet. Mm -hmm. Can we still not say it was, hmm. Because, I mean, if it's an interacting with its environment, I suppose, is an environment Oh, yeah, itself? no, it's interacting with its environment, yeah, for, for sure. The environment is, is everything at that point. It's mm -hmm. just that there aren't other beings yet. So the, out there, there's still the environment. There's still uh, everything <laughs> that was there uh, when life originated three and a half billion years ago. Presumably, there was an atmosphere, there was earth, there was a mantle, there was the sun. Um, but as life evolved, it, the ecosystems became populated with other critters. And so you not only interact with the material world, if you will, but also with other beings. Is, is that, are we falling prey to like making that dichotomy there? Like, no, um, I don't think so. Versus... I, the, the interaction with with the non with the material world is always there and is always going to be there and is something that we've you know in many ways either both forgotten about and trashed and changed the material world into something that's convenient for us but is very inconvenient for other critters and very <clears throat> worrisome in terms of what it's doing with the future warming being an obvious or excuse me climate change being an obvious example um so it, I, I don't think it's a dichotomy. It's just that ecosystems have complexified enormously and they're constantly changing. They're constantly, an ecosystem is not a thing. It's happening <laughs> um, that where some critters might not make it in that ecosystem and die off and others will fill in their niche and, and just is a continuous process. I suppose what I'm referring to is like um, Pachamama, you know, these like teachings from some indigenous cultures that um, the, you know, earth herself, herself, um, <laughs> you know, is a, is a spirit or is alive or is with us um, right. due to this, you know, web of life um, that she both is and supports. Um, so, so animism, I, I mean, let's call it animism with the notion that not only are living beings um, alive, but that the earth is alive, um, where then there's the obvious question of what does it mean for Pachamama to be alive as opposed to a tree, okay? And um, my own personal preference, and I, may, I hope I made it very clear in the book that this is my preference, uh, is to use the word alive for biological beings and not for rivers and mountains. But 
I certainly understand that there are beautiful stories where a lie is applied to what I would say is uh, other <laughs> and other, not in any other othering, uh, any lesser name, but uh, just just different. So, I mean, for me, a rock is an amazing, amazing thing, but I don't need to have it be speaking to me in order to have it be amazing. But aliveness um, isn't defined by something's capacity to speak to us. Well, the, I went ahead and applied term life to something that is a self and, I mean, does what we, what, if, you know, if you're playing 20 questions, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we do have these categories, okay? Mm -hmm. And then some people for what's the mineral uh, would uh, impart um, qualities to the mineral that others, uh, including little children, would say, no, uh, animal vegetables is, has those qualities, but mineral doesn't. And I mean, we could, we could spend two days on this. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to do that. But in the end, I think that this has, uh, has a lot to do with definitions, how you define what's being alive. And, uh, the definition in the 20 questions is one definition, the definition in, uh, the mind of, uh, of, of a shaman is is another definition and I'm not a shaman uh, so I'm very happy uh, being blown away by the planet in its non biological dimensions mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's, well it's, I think I think it's really really interesting because um Obviously, there's lots of schools of thought that, you know, want to uh, say, state, I don't know what the correct verb is, but they're like, you know, it, everything is alive and we are all al alive with it. Yeah. And yet also in what you're saying, there's this really interesting kind of like recognition and celebration of the plurality of everything that is here with us and a recognition mm -hmm. of diversity. Um, and I think when and we go in and out uh, of that, I mean, our my atoms, I mean, I'm going to have a green burial and my atoms will go out and become you know, part of the soil, uh, and part of the soil becomes part of my body when I eat, uh, a tomato. Um, so it's not like there's a dichotomy mm. in that sense, just that some of the matter, uh, on our planet gets organized into what I would call an organism, a life form and other parts of it doesn't at that moment, but there's continuous mix. I suppose. This kind of brings me back to my second question, um, and I'll preface it slightly. So I, one of the things I particularly enjoyed reading your book was, um, you know, your repetition that this is what works for you. This is <laughs> what you have found important and helpful and necessary for you, and that it's not a dictate. It's not something that everybody should follow. <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah obviously. <laughs> But also bearing in mind that plurality again, how do we create a grand narrative? How do we create a story that celebrates diversity of thought without pitting it against one another? How do we create a story that allows for uncertainty? So the that story allows for that mystery? I have in mind, yeah, the story I have in mind, going back again to the weaving, uh, 
has the has the warp as uh, our science-based understandings of nature as they now exist. And we could say, well, we don't understand everything and therefore these understandings are incomplete, which is fun and true. But we can also turn that around and say, but hey, we sure understand a lot of stuff, okay? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to understand everything to take what you do understand seriously and to uh, consider that as everybody's story as something that we all uh, relate to. How we then interpret, and oh, and then if we, if, if you'll grant me that for a minute, then in order to create something that we could call a planetary ethos, a global way of moving forward so that we take care of the place and don't uh, trash it. Uh, my sense is that because this is everybody's story, uh, it's the best candidate for, uh, for anchoring such an ethos. Um, the, what one does during one's day, uh, what books one reads, what the stories one has, the religious views one has, whether one believes in God or not. That's not the same thing as what we have to, I would say, come to grips with if we're going to um, do what we need to do in terms of climate critical issue. <laughs> so... So the story is that we don't know everything, but we sure know a lot. Right. Right. Okay. And so then it rests upon each individual within a community, within a culture to interweave that with their own cultural narratives. That's, that's what I would, that works for me. Um, you know, I, I have no Nothing in, in my worldview would begin to suggest that we toss out, uh, you know, views where there's a heaven paved with gold, if that's what works for you. <laughs> as, as long as, as uh, you know, you're, you're also thinking about buying an electric car and uh, recycling and, and uh, saving the forest in your uh, okay. neighborhood okay. uh you know i mean the, the i think anybody who would dare i would say to presume that their worldview is the one that everybody should follow which of course is what let's say a christian minister a missionary going into uh africa to convert the savages okay uh that they're concept was that they had a worldview that worked for everyone and um from my perspective there is this story that does work for everyone that describes everyone and everything and but we also have these imaginative minds and we can go with those i want to i want to push back slightly sure because it seems to me that we live in a world where, unfortunately, um, worldviews <laughs> tend to be understood and um, believed in to the extent that there is sort of a desire to, to perpetuate them. Um, and it's very difficult, if, if not increase, increasingly difficult, to have oppositional worldviews 
coexisting. Um, there is an increasing like homogenization culturally um, across across the world. Um, and so Wait I'm. A in- you just said that there that there are these different world views, and then you said there's homogenization. How yeah. You, so are you? I said increasing homogenization. Oh, uh, increase. Yeah. Okay. All right. So how I, do- I, I see it just the opposite. I, I think pools that all of these worldviews, uh, oh, everybody's staking their claim to their own worldview and that there are lots of them out there. I, I, maybe I've. I think, I suppose, you know, the worry for me is like, you know, the, um, the increasing reaches of capital of the global financial system um, and how that is sort of, you know, like entrapping everybody into a certain culture that what we see eradicates other cultures that it comes into contact with. Um, okay. okay, fair enough. I, th- I thought you were talking more about, you know, really the spiritual uh, orientations. But no. yeah, a capitalism. So, I mean, capitalism is a version of economy, right? So there are other ways that one can run an economy and um, economies have to do with who gets what, basically, uh, how you uh, <clears throat> build uh, technically, because the, the world out there doesn't need any technology, it already is, but uh, we humans have the idea that the world needs to be apportioned, and so we develop economies to organize those systems, and one of them is capitalism. Uh, Another is socialism. Another, uh, those are the two main categories. And in capitalism, you uh, invest in something and make a profit when you do so, and other people don't make a profit. Uh, I have been convinced by some people that it, to demonize capitalism per se as the root cause of everything that's a problem. Um, is an overstatement that mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. is possible to imagine, and many people have, a capitalism where there is investment and there is plowed back capitalism that works, that has limits, that you can't earn more than X per year, and then you have to give the rest of it away. So it capitalism per se, it, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that the model we now have is that capitalism uh, has sort of run away into ridiculous global uh, uh, manifestations. And so that needs to be fixed. No question. Well, but, I, uh, I think any what economic... Kind of, what kind of economic system we come up with uh, is, is to be determined. Uh, and the one that we come up with, to my mind, has to have as its root goal to have a habitable, sustainable planet. Sure. I think it's worth noting that if there was a cap on how much you're allowed to earn in capitalism, it fundamentally wouldn't be capitalism anymore. Um, and also it's worth it noting... It depends on your... Uh, I've read other things, but I mean, you know, the capital capital doesn't mean isn't the same as cap. Capital is, is what you invest in. So, oh, uh, that's, that's my understanding of capitalism. <laughs> Okay, I think my understanding of capitalism <laughs> is um, the attraction of capital in order to create more. Um, 
and the also the relationship, the necessary relationship between wage slavery in order for there to be capitalists. Um, Absolutely. And so it seems very difficult to understand or envision how a, a world or an economic order could ever be fair um, with under an economic order in which wage slavery is like a fundamental pillar of it. But uh-huh. my, uh, I mean, tackling the economy, using story in order to kind of rewrite also what the economy is, you know, the fact that the economy should serve people and planet, this is all very, very right. necessary. But I suppose my curiosity here is how do we write a story that allows for the existence of multiple stories because currently that's not the world that we live in um i I totally agree with you i mean what i envisage in the story is this planetary ethos is is obviously a total fantasy um you know how this could ever could it ever possibly happen um could human beings ever hit the planet ahead of their own particular interests and all get together and a big kumbaya happens um, is, is a dream. But, you know, if you don't have a dream, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> uh, and you might as well make your dream uh, one that is at least uh, helped um, suffered by a realistic understanding of what we're dealing with, what how reality really works um, in terms of the planet and its dynamics and the way it came to be. And most people don't like this stuff. Most people uh, aren't interested. So it's, it's definitely out there as, I mean, one of my friends said, yeah, when we completely destroy the place and a few people crawl out from under some rocks after the whole planet has been trashed, they'll say, gee, why weren't we religious naturalists? <laughs> 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 oh, so maybe that's, maybe that's when it will take, take over. But um, meanwhile, it's what I want to say. Yeah. I think, I mean, to defend us to defend us the human species um i don't know if it is that people aren't interested in this story whereas like they just don't have access to it you know the way that like science is taught in school well oh god it's it's so dull whereas there is so much joy to be had in knowledge and in learning how to turn that into wisdom and origins and like the more scientifically that you learn certainly for me how interconnected we are, the more excited excited I become and the more exciting I find this whole process because increasingly it relates with this symbolism, with the, this wisdom that permeates human culture and has done for thousands of years. So it's as if science is actually the experiment and we're testing it and testing it. And, oh yeah, no, it's coming out, coming out true every time. Yeah, no, <laughs> we're all connected, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just, I was in New York City over the weekend and there's a wonderful new exhibit at the Museum of Natural History mm. in Manhattan um, called Invisible Worlds or something like that. And it's this big, you know, video experience kind of thing. But it, it just absolutely, you know, we are interrelated, we are interconnected. Just, you know, you can't leave that 
place to say, hit you over the head with it um, <laughs> in the most gorgeous visuals. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, kindergartners should go through that exhibit every day. <laughs> mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Before they, before they start their arithmetic. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, every kindergartner well, should have a timeline around of, at, uh, on the top of, of the wall to, you know, immerse everybody mm. in where we sit and how we came to be. So uh, in the U.S. anyway, the problem with doing that is uh, that the Christians would say that we're, you know, bringing a religious view into the uh, classroom and there's the division of church and state and so it's bullshit. Um, there are education systems in America, like the Montessori uh, schools, where they do a lot more of this. And yeah, if I could change anything, I would change what children are taught. Yeah, yeah. Sort of try to teach a, <laughs> a reverence for, for our history, for the world. Yes. Um, well, uh, the, the history of, of humans is, is part of nature. So, mm -hmm. you know, that has mm -hmm. to happen as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... Um, the context is what we don't offer, I and do. when we do have, and when we do have, you know, science teacher comes in and they teach the parts of the leaf and you know, uh, uh, sedimentary rocks and stuff like this, you know, and it's all based on some test they're supposed to take at the end of the year to show their science competence. And then when you get in high school, they have labs and and but. Again, there's no, it's, it's more, the idea is that you're supposed to have science courses so that you can train people to be, uh, engineers and, and mm -hmm. you know, physicists and, and doctors and, and, uh, take this knowledge of the natural world to make money. And mm -hmm. that's of course completely opposite from what it should be. Yeah, it's a very atheist capitalist perspective rather than a religious <laughs> naturalist perspective. <laughs> no, it's bullshit. <laughs> I suppose uh, before we get into um, eco virtues and eco morality. Oh, okay. Um, I suppose the one thing that I wanted to tease out is, I suppose, was my is my surprise at the term religious naturalist, um, because I'm not religious. Um, and sure you are. Yes, you are. Well, I'm, I'm spiritual. Like, I'm happy to use that word. Spirit, spiritual is part of being religious. But What's it's the not difference? the only thing. Well, being religious is also being moral. Isn't that also being, can that not fall under spiritual? I don't think so. I Ooh. think that, uh, I mean, a spiritual self is, of course, motivated and thrilled uh, by the ability uh, their ability to have all sentiments. But uh, I see religious as the large term with, with three components. The spiritual, which is the inner part that you feel. The moral, which is the outward uh, community part. And then the third, we were doing earlier, the interpretation. How do you interpret your understandings of reality? Oh, man, but that's sort of more heady, existential, philosophical, uh, theological. <laughs> uh, so, oh, uh, 
but not necessarily spiritual. I mean, spiritual, you might have a spiritual response to your interpretation, but I see spirituals having to do with reverence um, and uh, gratitude and awe and all sorts of wonderful emotion-based responses. But uh, I think that religious is the word that works best for me to cover all three base. And so I call myself a religious person because I do my best to try to interpret the world, to experience it internally and to act on it. And so that's why I use holders. That's interesting. I need to, I'll need to sit with that one. Okay. Um, it's, it's spelled, I spell it out of the book. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you can go back. We, you may have skimmed over it. It's, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Cause I suppose the, the bit, and this kind of goes, we've already kind of revisited, but I'll just say it quickly. Um, the thing is typically with like worldviews and religions, it's like, you know, they don't, it's like baked you just into use, the You own... just use the word, and you just use the noun religion. Which is yes. really different. Yes. Okay, so, yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> yes. All and right. again, if you go back to the book, I try to make this distinction. So yeah. a religion is a completely different thing from being religious. So you could be religious and not join a religion. A religion has, you know, uh, a text has, you know, mm. particular rituals mm. that are done, particular interpretations. Uh, it uh, had typically has tithing and a clergy building they have to support. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of things about religions. Uh, and then also that most religions, as we were talking about earlier with missionaries going to Africa, have an evangelical control of trying to have that religion be adopted. But it's it's almost, we're, we're getting almost into capitalism here, right? I mm. mean, we're getting something that you're selling, uh, that means that you have people following your religion and following you and giving you power. Um, and that's, that has, to me, there, there are anthropologists who have referred to humans as homo religiosus, mm. <laughs> uh, as being naturally needing large stories that orient them that they can interpret, that they can respond to spiritually through ritual, through practice to imaginative art um, and being religious then also as a spiritual person of uh, the religious way and you said well when it's out of morality next uh has to do with treating others fairly and with passion okay then yeah, yeah sure i'm religious it still feels okay. quite. It still feels quite uncomfortable. <laughs> you can bury me. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's 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 so interesting. I've I've I've, I've converted many, and others still glare at me at the end. But so I'm glad you. Well, I mean, it's still <laughs> at least it, the word. It does feel a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? It doesn't well, roll off the I tongue. Understand. You know, I yeah, understand. Well, I understand. But yeah. I, I'm, you know, if if there's one word that I'm I'm trying to to deconstruct and you know mm. make available, it's that word because. It I, I, it means to bring together to ligate. So it's the same. It's the same root as ligament. Mm. Okay, um, and that is what a religious orientation 
does bring is it brings, it ligates, it brings together one's spiritual, moral, and interpretive self. Mm. And so I don't know any other word that does that. Oh, so that's yeah. why I use it. Okay, so we have our interpretations, which would be, you know, part of the our relationship with language and symbolic order. We've got the spiritual, which is uh, reverence, gratitude, and awe, and then moral, how one is in the world. And you write that uh, we need to develop an eco-morality, and you propose three eco-virtues. The first is think globally, act locally. The second is our capacity to build coalitions. And the third is our capacity to devise technologies, which was a real left fielder for me, and I I enjoy it, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been doing technology since we mm. made spears and everything. You know, it's it's not it's it's long before uh, we could talk about a thirteen billion year history of the universe or the Big Bang or anything. But uh, but I I would say that doing science is asking questions of nature, and then doing technology is using the answers to those questions. It makes it okay, and you don't have to make something. Oh, it could just sit there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe your knowledge of the natural world doesn't suggest anything that you can make. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's had many thoughts about how the Big Bang might influence how they make a refrigerator. Hmm. But, uh, but there's, there's uh, lots of our understandings of nature that have suggested things that we make. And of course, some of them have been horrendous. So it's not like making something based on our understandings of reality always works. Sometimes it completely backfires and sometimes it stops, but other times it's good. And what I was suggesting in that part of the chapter was that rather than just say, oh, technology is terrible, our technophobe is that the wonderful thing about technology is that to undertake a technology is a human decision by definition. It's the human who had a human, a company, a university has made a discovery about the natural world which suggests a technology. Whether that technology remains a concept or whether it's actually put into practice is a decision, a decision ultimately made by humans whoever they are, and that therefore we we actually do have control over technology. If we really had our act together, we could evaluate a technology and say, this technology serves the goals that we have adopted, which is to have a sustainable operation planet that is worth living in. Um, And this technology doesn't, so we're not going to develop it. And if it already develops, we're going to stop it. Let it carbon out of the ground. And so, at least in theory, we have control over technology, whereas nature just is. We can't do anything about how nature works. We can't stop a volcano. Yeah, we can't but, seem to control nature. But quite good at destroying it. Yeah. But we destroy it via technology, basically. Mm. Mm. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's how we manipulated that uh, has called the fraud. Out of curiosity, would you define story as a technology? Well, I, I, I think that's a 
that's a reach. I would say it, I mean, our minds are the ones that are inventing the stories and one could say that those inventions were technologies, but we've got lots of other words for what we do. Uh, I would keep technology to making things, not ideas. All right. Okay. <laughs> or art. Or... <laughs> when we, when we, we talk about artistry, we, I mean, we, we've got lots of words for, and, and it is creating something new in both cases, but um, what's created is quite different. Ursula, my final question for you is who would you yeah. like to platform? Oh, that. Well, there, there's so many people who are thinking along the lines that I am now that, that your question, the only thing it did for me was to generate a long list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether you tried Robin Wall. I can't remember it. She's Abba's person to talk to. Uh, and I, she wrote a wonderful poem about my book. She was totally into this way of thinking. Oh, oh, if you could get him, he's basically retired and for people, he might, I think he's getting bored and might actually come out of his shell, but uh, my favorite philosopher along these lines is a guy named Loyal Rue, R-U-E. Loyal uh, Rue? Yes, his first name is Loyal. Oh, wow. And I quote cool. him many times in the book, so if you go to the yeah. index, uh, you'll find him, but some of the best uh, statements about where we are. Some from Loyal. Wonderful. Um, there's also a wonderful man um, who calls himself J.D. without initials, just capital J, capital D. His actual name is John Dewey. <laughs> uh, his parents gave him that name. It's J.D. and then the last name is Stillwater, S-T-I-L-L-W-A-T-E-R. And he has basically decided to devote the rest of his life to telling the story and going to any event will take him. And he's just very lucid and imaginable. Wonderful to time. Oh, wonderful. Ursula, thank you so much for your time today. It was great. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together. 